Hey, good morning, Crosswalk. Welcome, welcome. Thanks for being here. You guys got here slow today. I'm not gonna lie. We started 1030. I was like, no one's coming to church. It's too beautiful a day. Um, and it is fun. It is fun when someone moves into Southern California in the summer and doesn't really understand how beautiful it actually is. Because, you know, we trick them by smog. Right, which is our own little safe little trick there. Um, and so to see somebody go through a California winter and be like, oh, I understand why pioneers coming across the country stopped here during that time because they got here in February, right? It's the people who got to Arizona in August and stayed that I don't understand those pioneers. They're like, no, this is fine. This is fine. <laughs> Maybe they thought they needed to do penance or something. Um, if you're from Arizona and you're here, I know why you're here because it's nicer here. If you're from Arizona and you're watching online, come on over. I'll, just, I'll say it that way. Anyway, um, thanks for being here. Um, yeah, fourth week already in this series. As you know, this year we're doing, every series is five weeks, and then that sixth week is a campus week, as we call it, because our campuses usually bring in a local speaker or I'll fly to one of the campuses, what have you. Um, I'm going to be doing a little bit more traveling this year because we've got more places starting, as well as making sure we're pastoring the places that um, have, that are connected with us in our different cities and states. And so thanks for that. You get to hear from a lot of different people this year, um, but I'll be around too. In fact, I'm doing this whole series, which I'm really excited about. And this week, I'm really excited about because this particular end statement is a big one, and it's a tough one, but it's an important one. This one pushes us to beyond just being a worshiping community and moves us into something much larger. So um, here it is. This is our fourth end statement. Crosswalk will be a community that lives beyond itself by caring and advocating for the powerless, oppressed, and abandoned. And of course, that is something that you all agree to. There's nobody here who's like, no, nah, I don't think so. Everyone's gonna say, yeah, of course. Well, this is what we should do. As Christians, this is what Jesus did. This is absolutely what we should do. Why wouldn't we? In fact, if we don't, maybe we're actually in trouble because scripture speaks to this again and again and again. Probably most powerfully, in the book of James, that little book that we often kind of jump over in um, our study of the New Testament. But in James chapter one, verse 27, it says it like this. Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for the orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. Now, we understand that this is where James would go. If you're familiar with his particular letter, the epistle of James, if you will, um, you understand that he's gonna talk about this. The whole book is speaking about the practical nature of our belief and not only what we believe, but what we actually do. So let me ask you this question right at the top, and I'm sorry, I apologize for it already, but I'm gonna put it out here right at the beginning. What does your faith actually do? Right, And I was going to ease you into this. When I thought about this sermon, I thought, you know, if I say some nice things to them, then I can ask them this question. <laughs> but if I start, they're not going to want to listen to the whole thing. I understand that. But stay with me. All right? Um, what does your faith actually do? Does it bring more compassion into the world? Does it bring more caring into the world? More love? Does it stay your tongue? Does it teach you wisdom? How is your religion pure and genuine in the way that James says that it will be? But maybe we need to ask the question and go a little bit deeper. What is James actually saying, right? Because I read this quote, but we need to get some context into this because this is a very context, eh, contested, 
Maybe that's, a, maybe that's too harsh a word, but people haven't necessarily loved the book of James over the years. In fact, the great reformer, Martin Luther, called the book of James an epistle of straw. That's rough. He didn't like it because it was an oddity. It did not seem to fit within the theological discourse of the New Testament. It seemed to lean into the ideas that, that deeds or works, those things that we did, somehow had a place in the redemptive process. In fact, it seemed diametrically opposed to Paul's writing, particularly in Romans and Galatians as Paul worked out his theology of grace and salvation. But we actually need to go back a little bit further to understand why this book is a little bit different. So the first question we ask is who wrote this book? Um, and, and there's three kind of prevailing schools of thought about who wrote the book of James. Now, the first one is James, the brother of Jesus, right? This is probably what you grew up, they grew up teaching you and telling you, and it's very possible that this is true. Some questions about it, and some questions about it um, have to do with the style of the language of it, if you want to know the truth. But this is kind of the first assertion of authorship, James, the brother of Jesus. Now, I know there's a lot of times when we learn um, like, for instance, the book of Hebrews, that's contested authorship as well. We believe it's probably Paul, but there's some questions about it. And it's really easy to go, oh, I don't care about that. Actually, it does matter a little bit for us to understand the provenance of each book. And while we're not going to solve this problem, um, if it's James, the brother of Jesus, do we need to listen to it more? Do we listen to it less if it's not? That question is interesting. I will say this, regardless of authorship, I think we can say that the Holy Spirit has used this book over the years. And for some reason, the early church fathers, at least by the time of about 300, 327 AD at the Council of Nicaea, that was either 311, I can't remember. It's around 300, it's a long time ago. Um, they decided to keep it in. Let's put it that way. The scholarship of the time said we need to keep this in because there's not only something beneficial of it, but there's some provenance, there's some, some, they understand that it came from somewhere that was good. They think it's written around 60, 62, which means it's earlier than the Gospel of John that was written. And it was often written, it's often been seen as against the misuse of Paul in the book of Galatians and in the book of Romans, which were, as you know, epistles and letters to those particular places. So that's James, the brother of Jesus. Um, the second thought is that it was later Christian authorship, right? Maybe within the Christian community, they kind of pieced this together in the late first century or even in the early second century. At least, again, in part, as a response to Paul's teaching, right? Paul is all about grace, all about how you're saved through the grace of Jesus Christ. There's nothing you can do. And James talks about the stuff you should be doing. And so they feel like it was almost a corrective against that theology of Paul. Now, let's be clear. I love Paul's theology. Um, so how does James work within it? We'll get to that. There's also another thought that maybe it's pre-Christian Jewish authorship. So it's actually much older than we think, at least 100 years older than we think. And this is because of the author's preoccupation with the law that leads some scholars to think it was written as an admonition to keep the law in a more profound way. But again, authorship is an issue. And since we don't have the autographs, you know, we, we wonder how it got in there. We wonder why it got in there. The reason why, the real reason why they think that it might not have been James, the brother of Jesus, is because of the language that James seems to use supersedes someone of James's um, education and skill. 
So there's another thought that he had a scribe. We call this a manuensis. That's my Greek word for today. I didn't write it up there because I can't barely say it. But it just means that there was a scribe who wrote it for him. And by the way, we all would love to have an executive assistant who said, say this to them. And they go, I will say it, but better than you did. And so that's maybe what happened here. But another reason why they wonder if it's not James, the brother of Jesus, is because it doesn't quote Jesus enough for the author to have known Jesus. Now, this is really interesting, right? It's a first century epistle. It's a first century letter. Is, is, why are there no quotes from Jesus, right? He doesn't quote like the synoptic gospels. In fact, he's not telling the same narrative as, he's not telling a different narrative. He's just not in narrative style in some respects. Did he really know Jesus? However, if you read the book of James, and I don't know how long it's been since you've read it, if you read the entire book of James, you begin to realize that it's kind of dripping and drowning in the teachings of Jesus, not just the quotes. In fact, it feels as if the author knew the teachings of Jesus so well they were embedded in every single thought. When you read it, you realize how indelible to the teachings of James are the teachings of Jesus. He does not quote, but it seems like he does not quote because he is living and breathing those teachings. Right? Do people know you as a person who quotes Jesus? Or do people know you who are a person of overwhelming love that is, of course, informed by Jesus? You see the difference? And that's what we feel when we read the book of James. I mean, should our faith be like that? Rather than quotes, it becomes a lived example of what Jesus taught. And yes, I do believe our faith should be like this. Our lived faith should be compassion and mercy, inclusive and desperate to love. But this quote didn't show up, right? Chapter one, verse 27 didn't just show up. It showed up in context. So let's make sure we're looking at the context. John, um, James is writing, whatever the author is, we're gonna default to James. James, the author, is writing to the diaspora. The Christians were leaving Jerusalem and ultimately we understand that the, the um, temple was destroyed in 70 AD and everybody essentially left Jerusalem. So he's writing to the diaspora and he goes right into the work, right at the beginning. At the beginning of chapter one, first it's encouraging faith and endurance because things are beginning to happen. There's beginning to be persecution in the early church of the Romans at that time. So he is in, he's giving them encouragement to continue on in faith and to continue to endure. And then he mentions how the poor are actually specifically blessed. He actually says it's a blessing to be poor and that they've got things going on that are a little bit better than those who are not poor, which I know is always a hard thing for us to understand. And then he encourages everyone saying in chapter one, verse 18, that we are, his, we are God's prized possessions, right? So he talks about wealth, but he talks about us being the wealth of God, his prized possessions. Isn't that beautiful? And then he goes into verse 19, and we're going to study verse 19 to 27 today. And he says, understand this, dear brothers and sisters, you must be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. And that's kind of weird. The last phrase was, and you are God's prized possessions. So shut up, listen a little more, and don't be a jerk. Right? That's a paraphrase. That's Tim's paraphrase. You're not going to find that anywhere. But that's kind of what he says. Right, which is all behavior all of a sudden, right? 
Now, we know that we're not saved by shutting up, by listening, and by not being a jerk. We know we're not saved by that, but it sure helps to function in the world, right? And it's okay to speak of behavior as long as it's a response, right? Because we need to talk about how Christians are supposed to function in the world. I think that's fair. And I think that's one of the things that James sort of leans into, right? Not to be redeemed or saved, but because of it. And then he actually makes just a pretty bold statement. He says, listen, human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. We're warned about being angry people. And you know, we shouldn't be angry people. And I know that seems pretty obvious, right? But you know that being angry actually does certain things to us, right? It, anger puts your heart at risk. Most physically damaging is anger's effect on your cardiac health. In two hours after an angry outburst, the chance of having a heart attack doubles. So if you drove the 91 to get here, we've got a defibrillator in the back. It'll be okay. But just, you know, maybe don't have coffee at the beginning. Wait a couple hours, then have the coffee, all right? Anger increases your risk of stroke. If you're prone to lashing out, beware. One study found that, that there were three times higher risk of having a stroke from a blood clot in the brain or bleeding within the brain during the two hours after an angry outburst. Anger lowers your immune system. In one study, Harvard University scientists found that in healthy people, simply recalling an angry experience from their past caused a six-hour dip in levels of the antibody immunoglobin A, the cell's first line of defense against infection. Anger makes anxiety worse if that's something you struggle with. In 2012, a study was published in the Journal of Cognitive Behavior Therapy. Researchers found that anger can exacerbate symptoms of generalized anxiety disorder, or GAD, a condition characterized by an excessive and uncontrollable worry that interferes with a person's daily life. Anger is linked to depression. Numerous studies have linked depression with aggression and angry outbursts, especially in men, particularly in depression, passive anger, where you ruminate about it and never take action is common. Anger messes with you. We're not to be angry people. And this will connect to what we're saying at the end, but stick with me. There's one other thing that I think is really important for us to understand. Anger is really narcissistic, right? When you're angry, you think of yourself. When you're angry, you think about what someone has done to you. And that's how you function in the world. And when you're angry, you cannot help others when you feel like you've been wronged, when you feel like things are unjust for you, when you feel like, you know, anger towards someone, you cannot show them empathy. Empathy is incredibly difficult when you're angry. I mean, there's righteous anger, but that's not what we're talking about, obviously. So James continues on. He says, listen, so get rid of all the filth and evil in your lives and humbly accept the word of God, the word God has planted in your hearts, for it has the power to save your souls. Planted in your hearts. Hold on to that phrase, right? By the way, this is why we study daily. This is why at 6 a.m., your Crosswalk app gets a notification and you've got 400 words that center on Scripture, center on the, the ideas of what we're talking about, all that sort of thing. We do it so that you can imbibe yourself in Scripture to help us understand God more profoundly and that it will be inked unto our souls for it has the power to save our souls. This is why it's planted in your hearts. This is why the book of James doesn't quote Jesus so much because it's living the Jesus life and it's admonishing us to live that life of Jesus. 
And then he goes on again and he says, but don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise you're only fooling yourselves. Right, what is your first instinct in any given situation? You know, it's the reason why we study scripture so that we might internalize it, internalize the teachings of Jesus, the ways and, and life of Jesus. We internalize it so that our first response comes from the teachings of Jesus and nothing else. It doesn't come from our personality necessarily. It doesn't come from our ideology. It comes from the empathy that God has shown to us and that has grown into our lives as well. Or are we just students that know the teachings but never put the behavior into practice? I've said this many times, I'm horrible at golf. I would like to be good at golf. I've taken lessons. I know what they told me. I even think about what they tell me. I cannot do it. No matter what, I'm, I'm okay, stand here, do this, do that. I'm like move, shake and move and, and I'm standing right and I'm moving. By the end, I'm just a mess of too many teachings. You know what I mean? And so I just do what normally comes naturally and then I hit into like three other fairways or break somebody's window. <laughs> golf is very expensive for me because I break lots of things and lose lots of balls. It's, I've never been able to internalize. You know, one of the reasons though is because I don't every day go down to the golf club and uh, the golf course and start hitting balls. I don't watch golf on TV. I don't read golf journals. I don't inundate myself with golf so that it becomes my first response, this teaching. I like golf fine. I like to visit a golf course. I like the food they have. It's usually the best part. If you don't listen to God's word, you must do what it says. Don't just listen to God's word, but do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourself. For if you listen to the word and don't obey, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. This is a weird metaphor he chooses, right? Like glancing at yourself in a mirror. Everybody does it. When you're a teenager, you do it a lot. Maybe more. And I think it's because... You see yourself, you walk away, and you forget what you look like, right? This is what he's saying. He's saying, listen, if you just listen to the words and you don't really internalize them and you don't do them, it's like you look in a mirror and you go, huh, pretty good. And you walk away and you look in another mirror and you go, huh, pretty good again, right? I, I have three teenagers in my house. My daughter's a little bit older now, so she's kind of coming out of that. But when, sometimes when I talk to them, they're not looking at me. They're looking at the window behind me that's reflecting their face. And I'm like, hey, are you looking at me? And they're like, no, no, I'll talk to you. I just don't want to look at you. I want to look at me. Um, it's a weird little metaphor that he uses, but, you know, it's, it's the idea that we don't really understand these words that we're supposed to be living because we're not supposed to just know them. We're supposed to live them and do them. If you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. Now, this is one of the reasons why it seems like it's a bit of an oddity, right? One of the reasons why James feels like it's a bit of an oddity is because he's talking about the perfect law. It seems like James is always leaning into the law. But I would like to, I would like to propose something here for you. I, I don't believe this was a pre-Christian writing. It just, to me, that doesn't make any sense right? Um, is it something that came later? Perhaps. I think the timing is probably right. 60, 62, around that, around that region. Could it have been the brother of Jesus? Absolutely. Could have been somebody else or some, you know, conglomerate of work, whatever. Um, but I think this, whoever wrote it didn't understand the law 
as a pre-Christian would understand the law. They understood the law in the way that Jesus defined the law. You know how Jesus defined the law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. That is the whole complete fulfillment and the whole point of the law. Love God, love others. So when he says, if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, he's not talking about 613 laws that you were supposed to keep to make sure you were pure and you were righteous and the Sabbath was kept. He was thinking of the two laws that Jesus was clearly speaking of when he said, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. So when he says the perfect law, that's what he's talking about. If you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says, if you love God and if you love others, then God will bless you for doing it. You know why? Because when you love God, you receive that love from God, and we've received it again and again. And when you love others, you're not losing that love that God has sent to you. You are just giving some space as you let that love go. You're giving some space for God to pour more love into you. Of course you're going to be blessed. So if we think he's talking about perfection, what he's talking about is perfect love. And Christians get that confused all the time. People of faith get that confused all the time. I want to be perfect, then love. You want to be perfect? Love. Love God, love others. It's simple. It is not easy. You know what I mean? It is not easy to love other people it's way easier to not love them. But then he kind of goes after it, right? He says this, if you claim to be religious, but you don't control your tongue, he's going back to this anger thing. But you don't control your tongue, you're fooling yourself and your religion is worthless. So loving God, loving others should affect your responses, your instinctual responses of how you deal with other people and how you deal with things in the world, right? And if you can't do this, if you have no control, what are you learning? What are you internalizing? How is the word of God being planted inside your heart? Or are you just coming and letting the worship and word bounce off of you? And then he says this, the quote that we started with, pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for the orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. Let's take that phrase for a second. Refusing to let the world corrupt you. How does the world corrupt us? Um, for the Pharisees, it was from the outside in, right? And I quoted this last, well, I didn't quote this. I quoted from Matthew 23 last week talking about the herb garden. Remember that? They would tithe on an herb garden, but you wouldn't care about the weightier things of law. A couple texts later, it says, what sorrow awaits you? Matthew 23, 25, these are the words of Jesus. What sorrow awaits you, you teachers of the religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're gross. Have you ever been to a male college student's dorm room? <laughs> you will know exactly what I'm talking about. Because I guarantee you somewhere in there is a cup of ramen. That the outside seems clean but there is a full-on biology and chemistry experiment happening inside, right? Inside are filthy, full of greed and self-indulgement. Right? This is a continuation of that thought from last week. So what Jesus is saying 
and we'll keep this in the context of, of James there in a second, but what Jesus is saying, the world corrupts from the inside out, right? Sorry, the world corrupts from the inside out. This is why James said, I think, that the word of God has to be planted on your heart because that's inside. So if the word of God is planted in your heart, you're not gonna be corrupted by the world. You can't be, you're filled with everything that God has taught you, with everything that God wants from you, with all that love, with all that compassion, with all that empathy, with all that mercy, all of that has filled your, your heart. So you cannot be corrupted by the world. But when all you are is concerned about how things look on the outside, your heart can be black and gross and you can come worship God and nobody knows the difference. Matthew 23, 26 then says, you blind Pharisees, first you wash the inside of the cup and the dish and then the outside will become clean too. When we put the word of God, the life of Jesus and his teachings into our hearts, we cannot be corrupted by the world because our first instinct is to care it's to compassion, it's to empathy, and it's to response. This is why we declare that Crosswalk will be a community that lives beyond itself by caring and advocating for the powerless, oppressed, and abandoned. But you know that by declaring this, we are also declaring that we are not willing to let anger control us that we will put the word of God in our hearts and we will respond to it instinctively. It will become the first move that we are used to making so that this will be the outcome of our worship and our fellowship and our study and our service and our time together. Everything leads to this. Our economy of the church, our reason for study, the desire of our hearts, should be that we become salt and light through advocacy and action. This means that we have to have faith that moves us to action. But there's a word that we put in here that life would have been a lot easier had we not put it in there. And this word is advocacy, right? This is an important word. And, um, it's, it's funny, because I don't even think about it this way, but I, I, I got a text from someone today and said, oh, you know, just love the sermon. This is from another place. Love the sermon. Love the way that you use those hot button words. And I literally was like, I don't know what hot button words he's talking about. The word advocacy apparently has become a hot button word. You see, here's the problem with advocacy. Advocacy goes beyond good works. Stay with me here. Advocacy means that we not only take the man that the Good Samaritan did, we not only pick that man up and brush him off, but we take that man to the inn and then we pay for that man's care. It means that we have to be invested in creating not just good works, but good systems because advocacy means good systems. It means more than drive-by compassion and a dollar on the side of the road, but a system of care that can help perpetuate what people need. It means going deeper, building relationships and building systems that help people. And I get it. It's really easy to go, yeah, but people will abuse those systems. You've abused the grace of God. So it's okay. 
right? It's okay if we build systems that people abuse sometimes. And I think as Christians, we need to, first of all, recognize that's gonna happen. And second of all, it's okay. Because we've abused the grace that God has given us at times and God has not withheld it from us. So I guess this becomes the question. What systems of advocacy are you creating in your life, in your church, in your work? You know, this week I was talking to Pastor Mike and he said almost 100 people we served, access to healthcare, food. And that's great. But that's only 100 people out of millions that are desperately in need, widows and orphans in the same situations. And we've been called clearly to do this work. Whether we're here doing our health clinic and our Lovewell Partners Dinner, or whether we're in Chattanooga working with the food banks and some of the other work that they do, or in Portland as they work with the uh, Portland Avenue Community Services that has a massive work for outreach and um, compassion in the city of Portland, or in LA where they work with a women's and children's shelter, women and children who have been abused. If you're in a group somewhere in the world and you watch us, what is your group doing? We wanna know. We don't get to come here and worship without this work. We don't have a right. We don't get to come and experience fellowship in the robust and abundant way that God wants us to unless we're doing this work. We don't get to call ourselves Bible-believing Christians unless we do this work. And some of us will do it hard every week. Some of us will give to it financially because that's what your space of life allows for. Some of us will have seasons where we stop and seasons, I'm not expecting you to go out every single day and do this. I'm expecting this to be part of the first instinct that you have as a Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christian. Or else we're just listening to the words. We're not doing the words. We're just listening to the instruction and never putting it into practice. In the end, is your religion pure and genuine because it makes a difference in the world? What is your faith doing to the world and for the world? We will do everything we can to help create those systems, but you gotta show up, you gotta come. And if it's not with us, we don't have to recreate every good thing that's happening in the world, go somewhere else and serve. The crosswalk will be a community that lives beyond itself by advocating, caring and advocating for the powerless, the oppressed, and the abandoned. And you have to know, probably sometime in your life, you're gonna be one of those. You're gonna feel oppressed, you're gonna feel abandoned, and you're definitely gonna feel powerless. If we are not involved in this work, then what does it matter that there's Christians in the world? And I don't know about you, but on a week like this week, where we see what's happening in the world, I hope that the only Christian response is what can we do to make this better? What can we do to bring more love, compassion, empathy, and hope into the world? That has to be our first instinct, the instinct of Jesus. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just wanna, Thank you. 
Because I know that you went to the powerless, oppressed, and abandoned. So will I. And you went to the, the widows and the orphans. So will I. And you went to those in power and advocated with them to help those who didn't have the power. And so we'll do that too, Lord. So Lord, let us just be people who are willing to follow you for real. In your name I pray, amen. Stand and worship with us one more time.